Welcome everybody uh, and I'd just like to formally present uh, Scott O'Donnell who's the current Technical Director at Capital Football and Assistant Coach at Canberra United. Um, Scott had a playing career uh, at Parramatta Melita Eagles in the National Soccer League, uh, also over Kuala Lumpur Football Association with Malaysia and the Tampine, Tampine Rovers in Singapore. He then uh, pursued his coaching career at Geylang United Football Club in Singapore, where he was there for uh, two and a half years and won the Coach of the Year in 2003. Also then took over the, to be coach of the Cambodian national team. Uh, and as I said, he's now currently assistant coach at Canberra United in the W League. Um, he's also been, prior to being Capital Football's technical director, uh, worked with the Football Federation Cambodia and All India Football Federation and often travels over to India to do workshops uh, with their Football Federation. Also has worked with the Asian Football Confederation as Director of Coach Education, is a qualified AFC instructor, a qualified FIFA instructor and a qualified FFA coach developer, which more, makes him more than qualified to present tonight's presentation. Welcome, Scott, and enjoy. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, thanks for the intro. I actually forgot to mention in the intro that in the old Melita days, I was also an economics and business studies teacher because in those days, the NSL, um, you couldn't survive on those match payments. So I, uh, we used to work of a daytime and then go to training of a nighttime. So that was a long time ago. Um, and I'd also like to thank uh, Kevin Greamer from FFA and Mike Edwards from Football Tasmania who are gonna chime in with their contributions throughout the, the workshop. And I, yeah, I encourage you all to ask any questions that you have. There's gonna be plenty of opportunities for that. Um, I was interested to, to, to talk about this topic because it's something that I think we, as coaches, um, particularly at junior and community level, I think there's far too much focus on winning. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to win games. I think everyone who goes out there wants to win games. But I think there's a lot of different ways in which we can approach it to ensure that that's not um, the main focus. So the main context for this presentation is to try and encourage coaches to make match day a learning opportunity for the for your players and hopefully taking into the game what what you've been working on in training um, to create that positive uh, environment on match days because I think sometimes um, and I and I'm sure you've all seen it yourselves where there's just too much pressure on the kids to try and win games rather than go out there and enjoy themselves and and have some fun. So we'll get started. There's I, I've just got a picture of two flowers, roses, I think they are, although I'm not familiar with flowers. That one's obviously dying and the other one's blossoming. And it brings me to this quote from Amari Williams, that any gardener will tell you that a flower will blossom best in the most suitable environment. The same can be said about our young players. The environment they're subjected to affects their ability to develop to their full potential. And as we're going to see later on, that's the... That's the purpose of coaching. One of the purposes of coaching is to try and get our players to reach their full potential. So what we're going to talk about in the first part is just about match day preparations, your pre-match prep, your talks, your warm-up, just basic stuff, which I'm sure you're all aware of. 
Then we'll go into a little bit of um, what are we doing in the first half in terms of observations. Um, but the main part of the, this presentation is all about um, creating a positive learning environment in match days and, and, and player-centred coaching and how we can achieve that player-centred coaching by looking at creating a theme for your training or your game, goal setting, helping your players to set goals, your observation and then your communication. Um, and hopefully that will all lead to, to a, a positive learning environment, particularly on match days, but also during your training sessions as well. So the, the, the first part of this is gonna be very basic, but I think it's important that we just go through it. In terms of your match day preparations, you've gotta be aware of the players that are available, players that are sick, players who have gone on holiday, so they can't come, can't come to the game. Um, so you have to know all that and you pick your team taking all of those factors into consideration and also paying attention to the, the spirit of the team and how they're feeling. And that may, be, that, that may be impacted by what's happened at training and if it was a good training week or a not so good training week. So we bring the team together, you organise, you let them know and you remind them and maybe you remind them three or four times about the time and place of the game, what time you want them there. And then you, you may be talking to the individual players and maybe as a team as what are their roles and responsibilities that they've got to carry out for the upcoming game. One of the, the important things I think is um, not talking too much before a game, but you obviously may want to talk about the opponents, um, their strengths and their weaknesses. And that may have been done during training. But I think it's also a good opportunity for you to ask the players what the opponent's strengths and weaknesses are. You know, who are their key players? What style do they play? All that sort of stuff can be, you don't have to give the, the players the information yourself. There's nothing wrong with you asking them and them coming up with it, because most of them will know. I think one of the issues we have with, um, as coaches in general, is that we, we don't give the players enough credit about what they know and what they don't know. We're, I think we're too eager sometimes to give them the answers all the time rather than giving them the opportunity to tell us what they think. So obviously we've got to pay attention to climatic conditions and the state of the pitch, like, uh, particularly when you're, you're in cold climates in the middle of winter like here in Canberra, um, you may want to do uh, a slightly extended warm-up. But it's important that this pre-match meeting where we're not bombarding the players with too much information, it's about making it clear and concise. Because if we don't, then we might end up with the players falling asleep in the dressing room. Uh, so shorter, the shorter the better. Um, making it concise and clear so the players are fully aware of what their roles and responsibilities are for the game. In terms of warm-up, obviously, Warm-ups vary from coaches to coaches, from country to country, depending on the culture and depending on the climate. Um, the main point for me is that you physically and mentally prepare your players for what's coming up next, for what's happening in the game. So the same physiological basis that you do in tr uh, your warm-ups for training should be used for the same for the game. Maybe higher levels of stimulation because the players are excited because they're just about to start a game, but they'll be motivating themselves. And by optimizing the neuromuscular system, hormone levels increase. And we wanna try and include 
the ball for technical confidence as part of the warm-up. Um, include some dynamic stretching and also don't forget to rehydrate during your warm-up. How you prepare your warm-up, um, it's completely up to you. And I, and I wonder sometimes whether we engage with our players to ask them what they like doing um, in warm-ups, which wouldn't be a bad idea. So for youngsters in basic training, a good warm-up should be fast, dynamic and motivating. Between 20 and 30 minutes, minutes depending on the age. And it should include some running, technical skills, technical tactical position and some specialist position activities like your strikers might be shooting, your central defenders might be heading, your midfielders might be knocking some long passes. And that's why I think it's important that we include our players in what they want to do in the training sessions because we want the players to be ready to start the game. And we don't want to give them any excuses, or oh, I didn't get any shots on, or I didn't get any passing on, or I didn't get any headers in, um, because that's if that's what they want, maybe give them some time to do their own. That may be one way um, of doing it. I know when I was in Japan, and this was at a J-League club, where the, the coach of the senior team used to make the younger players take the warm-ups. Because if, and that made them feel involved and part of the team and also encourage them to talk to the senior players because, because of the culture over there, the junior players or the, the younger players didn't talk to the, the senior players unless I was spoken to because that was just part of the culture. So by giving the younger players a responsibility to take the warmer, actually encourage them to engage with the senior players. So, I mean, that's all basic stuff and I'm sure you're all well aware of um, what should be involved in a warm-up. So is there any questions about um, warm-ups and pre-match preparation? As I said, I think it's a very um, basic thing in terms of the information that I gave and also it's up to the individual coach as to what they want. But as I said, I think it's important that we talk to the players about what they want in warm-ups as well. A uh, couple of questions, um, Scott. Uh, Michael, do you want to just come off uh, off mute? Yeah. Nice girls. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Scotty. Um, question about your pre-match talk to your players. Up to what age do you allow or suggest that parents hear those messages as well? Because we want something consistent because quite often we hear the parents from the sideline shouting things to their, their sons or their daughters that might be different from what you've said. So how do you manage that and up to yeah, what that's a good That's a good question, Mike. I think, I think it's got to be addressed at the start of the season where you explain um, the rules. And when I say rules, I mean the, the guidelines for the parents and the behaviour that you want, that you're happy to encourage, for them to encourage your, the players, their sons and daughters. But we don't want to comment about instructions about where to pass the ball to or who to kick it to. We just want to encourage. So I, I, wouldn't, I don't think we should be including players. This is just my personal view. I don't think we should be including parents in our team talks. But we, we may, if you wanted to, um, maybe before a game, just explain this is how we're going to play today. And then um, just state your expectations of the behaviour that you accept from your from your parents, but I wouldn't be including them in my team talk, I don't think. Okay. Now, just one of the um, 
one of the people that I'd listened to, Wayne Goldsmith, and coaches may be familiar with the work of Wayne, was to talk about the influence that up to around about the age of 12 or 13, the main person that a young player will communicate with is their parents. And, you know, the ride to the ground or the ride home afterwards are quite often conversations about the game. And if we're on the same page with our parents, then the questions that they ask or perhaps um, the feedback that they can give, if it's based around what we've set out as coaches, can quite often help the player and their development. So I just wondered whether or when you would deliver your weekly message to your parents so that they're on the same page as you are. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've noticed quite a few times with junior teams that the parents gather around after the game when they might be making the, the player of their match award or, or most improved player. That's a good opportunity, I think, to bring the parents in after the game so the parents can, can maybe hear the feedback that you're giving the players and then maybe they can take those cues on the, on the car on the way home to, to maybe reinforce that. Yeah. But I think the most important thing is at the start of the season, explain, get all the parents and the players together and explain what you expect from them. Um, and you set some boundaries right from the start. Uh, Debbie, can you come off mute, please? Yeah, hi, Scott. Um, enjoying your presentation so far. Just curious with your experience coaching males and females uh, as an assistant in the W League, do you think there's any difference in the type of warm-up that female players do or compared to males? Or is it would you run the same sort of a warm-up irrespective of male-female? I... Um I've got my ideas and how I think the warm-up should go based on um, how we want the players to play and the behaviours that we want them to show in a game. So what I try to do is incorporate them into the warm-up, finding ways of incorporating the style of play and the behaviours that we want our players to achieve in a game during the warm-up. And my warm-ups have changed when I first started coaching till, till now and they're constantly evolving. I like watching, I like getting to games early and watching other teams warm up um, just to get some, some ideas on and how they do it. But I think, as I said earlier, I think I alluded to that it's important that we try and consult the players on aspects of the game that they want to be prepared for in, the, in a warm-up because we want the players to be fully focused and prepared. And um, getting input from players, I think, is really important. But I don't think, I, I, I don't think I've noticed a difference between how I warm up male players and female players because I've worked with the girl, I work with the younger girls in here in Canberra as well. And um, I don't think my warm-ups differ compared to uh, male or females. Great, thanks. And hang in there, Debbie's presentation gets better as it goes. <laughs> uh, Andrew Wilson, I've updated, upgraded you to panellist if you want to come off, uh, you're off mute actually, if you want to ask your question, Andrew. Oh, great. I've been upgraded. Fantastic. Um, yeah, just um, about Maradona, he seemed to be doing his uh, self-directed. And at what age, if at all, would you be looking at um, players doing uh, self-directed warm-ups versus coach-led on the basis that if you get the kids doing what they're happiest with, they'll be entering the game in a, a good mental state? 
Yeah, that's that's a challenge we've got because I think I always I always give the players, no matter what age, a certain amount of time to do stuff on their own. So if they wanted to do some juggling or keeping their the ball up with their head, then they've got a, a bit of time to do that. But I, I don't think I would let the players to do their whole warm-up by themselves because we... I want, as I said, I want them to incorporate some of the behaviours that I expect from them in the in the game, yeah. in the warm up. So I think it's that balance. I think we there's nothing wrong with giving players the opportunity to do their own thing, but I think there's also as it's a team sport, we've got to we've got to warm up as a team as well. Yeah, no, that's that's great. I think um, I've always been coach led, but just listening to a bunch of uh, webinars during uh, coronavirus, it's um, I'm thinking maybe I need to be. Um, moving a little bit more to um, player-led or at least getting that balance right. So just tweaking the balance a bit. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thanks. Uh, g'day, Sharon Egger. If, Sharon, if you want to ask your question, you're in a position to do that. Uh, Scott, can you hear me? Yep. It's your favourite sister calling. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, just a, a question. Look, I have to be honest, I haven't over the years, it hasn't been my focus warm-up, so I'm kind of interested with, in a lot of the things that you've said. But um, just in regards to um, keeping, I've kind of tended to keep my warm-up consistent throughout the season, um, and I'm not really sure why I do that, um, except I, I kind of feel like the players um, like to know what, what's coming in a warm-up. Um, and the structure of, of our warm-up, and it seems to have worked for me. But I just wondered um, what your thoughts were on consistency from match to match on, on match day warm-up. Yeah, I'm the same. My, 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 my warm-up sessions are always the same throughout the season. Once we get it set, yeah. you might experiment in pre-season, but then once we get it set, I, I, I'm a creature of habit. I like doing those and, and I think a lot of players do. They like they know this is where we're preparing for a game and this is what we do mm. as we prepare for a game. We do this, then we do that, then we do that exercise and we do that. And I think that's I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Mm. Um, what you might do if you don't feel like the players are getting the warm up that you need, then you may have to address it. But that's just simply asking the players after the game. I mean, if after they win, obviously the warm up was great, and if they lost, then maybe the warm up wasn't so good. But <laughs> generally speaking, I, I like consistency in a warm up. Um, and once we've got it, unless there's anything um, missing or we're getting regular feedback from players, or maybe the conditioning coach, if you have one, that maybe we need to incorporate a few other things. I mean, I'm always open for new ideas, but once we get it throughout the season, I like to stick to a to a similar warm up. Okay, thanks. Uh, Jake, Jake Goodship, if you could come off mute, please, Jake. Hi, Scott. Hey, Jake. Just a quick one. Um, obviously, as part of your pre-game organisation and planning, what's your opinion on pre-selected teams within the more so the SAP phase or maybe under 13, 14 phase and pre-planned subs? If so, would you encourage more teams or clubs or, or federations to play instead of playing halves, to play quarters, to allow maximum game time for players? Yeah, that's a good question, Jake. I did a workshop a couple of, well, last month about unlimited, managing unlimited substitutions because I got frustrated watching coaches spending all their time substituting players instead of actually watching the game and letting the kids yeah. get into the game. Um, and one of the things that I suggested uh, was that 
Because sometimes the games I watched earlier this year, the friendly games, the coach would make a sub after five minutes and the player may not have even touched the ball. So it's important. I, so even if the, the, the member federations or the associations aren't willing to have 20-minute quarters, there's nothing wrong with the coach to, to implement that and every 20 minutes make some changes. Um, because I, I think it's really important to allow the players to get into the game and then establish themselves um, before making those subs. Because... So managing subs and planning those subs, yeah. I think, is really important. And it also helps the players. They know that, Jake, you're going to come off after 20 minutes and then you're going to come on again at half time, And you know what position you're going to come on. Obviously, you've got to be flexible in case there's injuries. But I'm a big, I'm a big believer in, in planning those substitutions and, and, get, and telling the players that so they know that they're going to play the first half at right back and in the second half they might play right winger, for example. So I think having that certainty and the players knowing that, so if they do get taken off, they may have just made a mistake, but they think they're getting taken off because they made a mistake. But if you tell them beforehand, then they know they're coming off because that was the plan before the game. Yeah, and uh, just a, a double part to the question, what would alter your starting lineup, particularly in a major group? I know each club's different in terms of their philosophy, but mostly have equal game time and, and whatnot. However, if players miss training during the week, um, would that alter your, your starting lineup or, or your planning for the game on the weekend? I think it depends which age groups we're looking at. Um, but I, I would like to think that we set some rules at the start of the season and I would make it clear that if, if you haven't got a good reason as to why you missed training, then you probably won't be starting that, that game. And that gives someone else a chance to start. Obviously, you'll get your game time. But once again, it's like those uh, behaviour of parents. It's important that we... Um, it's important that we set some boundaries at the start so the players know and the parents know because a lot of the time it's the parents sometimes who can't get the kids to training. Um, yeah. And that's another thing you've got to take into consideration. But I think it's important that if you set some rules and you keep those consistent throughout the season, I think the parents and players will respect that and get used to it. Yeah, thank you. And I look forward to the rest of your presentation. Thanks. Uh, Got a lot of people watching on Facebook. Scott from Ahmed on Facebook, welcome. Just wondering if announcing the starting 11, whoops, I've just, it's just moved on my screen. Where are we? Sorry about that. Just wondering if announcing the starting 11 is better done before the warm up or after the warm up? Yeah, I, I, I would announce it before the warm up because it's, maybe there's, there's things in the warm up that I want my starting 11 to be doing. I might get that starting outfield 10 players doing a certain exercise. So, so I would announce it before um, the warm-up so the players know that they're actually going to be part of the starting 11 and the players, maybe the players who are substitutes, they may not be working as hard as the players who are preparing for the warm-up because they'll, they'll redo their warm-up as the first half progresses. So I, I would probably announce the starting 11 before the warm-up. Uh, from Carmel on Facebook, any thoughts on warming up in small places or small spaces due to ground configuration? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's definitely a challenge. And that's sometimes you have to alter your warm-ups because there's nowhere else to warm up because the, the game that's being played before you is still going on and you might get five minutes on the field before the next game starts. So trying to be creative and... Um, yeah, you have to be creative sometimes to be able to establish your warm-ups in those smaller areas. 
So that, that's a tough one. There's no, there's no easy answer, but you have to be a little bit flexible in, in those instances to ensure that, that the players are going to get the best possible warm-up, even if you haven't got a field to, to warm up on. Uh, from Adam down in the capital. Adam, if you could just come off mute, please. Can you hear me, gents? Yep. Yep. Good to see you all. Uh, just a question about the goalkeeper. When we're dealing with the, with the sub teams from, from nines nine to twelves, would you invite your goalkeeper to warm up with your team for the whole time, Scotty? Or would you separate him or her at some point? And if you decide to separate goalkeeper, uh, who's going to do it? Consider yeah. you, have no, you, have, you, know, you have parents with no football experience and then you need to find the balance of you know, who's more important to warm up, my team or my goalkeeper? Yeah, yeah I'd like to include the goalkeeper or goalkeepers in the, in the main part of the warm-up, but I'd also like, and maybe you can get, if you had a reserve keeper, they could maybe warm each other up to get some handling practice in. Or if you had a parent, maybe you could train them to say, look, I need you to, um, to help warm up the keepers before the game. Can you do it? This is what I want you to do. And maybe you can take them through that if you've got a cooperative parent who may be willing to help. But at that younger level, I'd like to in, I, I would like to encourage all the players to have a go in goals as well, just so they can appreciate uh, the role of the goalkeeper and, and understand that it's not so easy. Um, and they often take a lot of um, criticism that... Um, despite the other team getting through the defence and the midfield and the forwards. But I would do a combination. I'd have the goalkeeper warming up in certain parts because they've got to learn to play with their feet, but also try to give them some time um, to get some handling practice in and maybe some shot stopping as well. Cheers, mate. Okay, Adam. Thanks, mate. Uh, Kevin Grimer, um, you've put a number of things on chat there. Do you want to come on and just summarise those? Because the chat's only gone to the panellists and not all the attendees. So if you wouldn't mind, Mark. Sure. Um, first of all, thank you so much, Scott. Great presentation so far. I strongly agree with your substitution ideas. Um, a lot of coaches, I find, get distracted when managing subs. And if they have a pre-planned schedule, the players know exactly what's coming up. So psychologically, they'll be better prepared. Plus, they'll get a better opportunity as well to showcase their talent knowing what's expected in front of them as well. If a child gets removed after five minutes, which is something we see consistently, they're not going to showcase anything within that time frame. So dividing things up within quarters is, is quite important. And at my previous club, when I was a technical director, we had a general rule that the first three quarters, every single player played at least 50%, which then gave a little bit of freedom and a um, little bit of freedom and potential to do different things in the final quarter, knowing that every single player has already played 50% of the game. So I think it's integral that there's some type of predetermined schedule and potentially can have an assistant coach there with you to help you out to make those changes, to help you observe what's happening on the actual pitch and monitor the players that are on the park. Yeah, that's a good idea, mate, in terms of... And, if, and everyone knows that at the start of the season, right? So there's no surprises and it, and it allows the coach to, to maybe experiment a little bit more in that last quarter of the game because everyone else has had their 50%. So it's a good idea. Thank you. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, and uh, Q&A from Gherkin. Uh, this might come up later in your presentation, but I'll ask it now. Scott seems it's there. Yep. What advice would you give to a parent coach who has his kids in the site? 
favoritism or backlash from other parents potentially? <laughs> I would advise don't be, put yourself in that position in the first place. Um, I know it's not easy um, and I know a lot of the, the clubs are struggling for coaches and most often than not, or more often than not, it's one of the parents who gets roped in. Once again, I go back to the warm-up or I go back to the expectations of the parents. I would get the parents and the players together at the start of the year and tell them this is what the season's going to look like and you're not going to get everything right. You're going to do your best um, and you want some help from some of the other parents, but this is how things are going to go. So you lay some rules out at the start and the challenge with that is you've just got to maintain your consistency with those rules um, to ensure that you seem to be fair and you, I mean, you're always going to cop criticism of favoritism because um, the, son, the son or the daughter took the penalty or scored the goal and all that sort of stuff. I don't think there's any way around that, but I think if we're open and honest with all the team at the start of the year, players and parents, and we, we set out the guidelines, then um, that's all you can do. That's all I would do anyway, to ensure that I tried to nullify any, any uh, criticism of, of being favouring my son or daughter. Thanks. And uh, just to finish up, a bit of love coming from Michael. I'm not sure whether he's in Asia or uh, Australia. Saw you play for Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia and Tampines in Singapore back in the 90s. So I'm not sure he's <laughs> made yours, but I'm sure he is. Yeah, no, good to hear from him. Uh, so a lot of questions there, Scott. Uh, if you're watching the time, we've we've gone for about a half an hour so far in your presentation. So yeah, so we're going to have to we'll uh, have to whiz through this. Um, okay, so we'll we'll carry on. Um, just in terms of what are we looking for in the first half when we're coaching when we're coaching our team. Okay, so we're observations. What are we looking for? Obviously, we want to be looking for. Our players, are they fulfilling their roles and responsibilities that we, we talked about before the game? What about the shape of our team? Um, if we've got a theme, are we trying to play to that theme? If they've got individual goals that we're trying to achieve in that game, are we close to achieving those goals? Um, are we looking at the opposition? Are we worried about their strengths and their weaknesses? Um, if we're making substitutions in the first half if there's unlimited subs are they planned um, who do we make uh, who, do, who makes those substitutions who comes on and who comes off which is why I think it's important that we have that planned well in advance so everyone knows um, but for me particularly in uh, the, the behavior of the coach on the sideline is to encourage your team and motivate your team and so that's what very simply what a first half observation may look like taking some notes so you've got a few notes to prepare for your team at half time so we're going to go into we're going to go into half time now um, just play this short video uh, Jose, the first half, you didn't look very happy with your side whatsoever. It was a different performance from them in the second half. Give us an insight as to what you said at half-time, please. Do, do, you want, do you believe me? I told them nothing. Nothing. Not a word. You didn't say anything at half-time to your players? Not a word. Did you stand there and stare at them? No, just a word. Nothing. I told them nothing. I walk, I walk in, I walk out. I told them nothing. 
So you went in, you looked at them, and you left, and they got your message from that? I don't know, but I did nothing, not, not a word. Okay, so you've got Jose Mourinho. Um, they went on to win that game 3-1. I wonder if you would have admitted that um, after the game had they lost. Um, but I don't, I'm not encouraging you as coaches to go in and say nothing at half-time. But there's nothing wrong with, once again, and I, I hope this is going to be a, a theme throughout this presentation, is encouraging your players to contribute at half-time and come up with some ideas. So going through to your... Uh, Jose. Um, so ensure your players are... I don't, some, some teams have access to dressing rooms. Sometimes you're doing your half-time talk on the bench or out in the middle of the field. So ensure your players calm down and recuperate. Sum up the important points that have um, that to be changed or corrected at half-time. Don't focus too much on what happened in the first half because... What's done is done. You've only got a short amount of time to try and correct things. So you make your changes, if there's any changes in tactics, in terms of substitutions or the game plan. But keep your messages um, simple and concise so there's no misunderstanding. And I think the use of the tactical board is really beneficial um, because the players can actually see what you want them to do in terms of positioning. Um, and whereabouts on the field you want them to be. So having, uh, having use of a tactical board is very um, advantageous, I think. Try to focus on all the positive stuff that the players have been doing in the first half. Encourage and motivate and make sure everyone's involved, including the substitutes. But yeah, there's nothing wrong with, um, with incorporating or asking for feedback from your players. Um, as a coach, you've got to be confident in reassuring and convincing about the talk that you're giving at half time because you want your players to go out there and incorporate what you're encouraging them to do. And if you're confident and reassuring and convincing, then there's a good chance they'll go out with a little bit more confidence. But it's very short, so focus on only the, um, the essential items. And the most important thing for me is if we are going to make any changes, tactical or positional or those changes, or if you're going to change your formation, they need to be practiced at training. So if you're playing 1-4-3-3 in the first half and you're going to switch to a 3-5-2 in the second half, it's important that the players have practiced that at training. Don't ask them to do something that they're not familiar doing because then it'll just come unstuck. So all those tactical situations or variations that you may have up your sleeve at half time, it's important that they're practiced at training um, beforehand, before those matches, so the players know exactly there's no, um, there's no surprises for them. Okay, I'm gonna, we're going to look at the um, a video. It's not a, it's not a football video. It's an American football video about behaviour of coaches on the sidelines. Um, and what impact that may have on your players. Peewee football for eight to 10 year olds. And for the most part, the parents on the Jupiter side of the field, while boisterous, were under control. But on the other side of the field. Then you need to stay with me and act like you want to play this game. I am. No, you're not. And you're not. You're moping around, going, how come I'm not getting to play? This is the visiting team from another town up the Florida coast. On this side of the field, the atmosphere is a little more, well, let's call it intense. Oh, I guess they got that one too, huh? 
He's Robert Shepard, the in-your-face visiting team coach and parent of one of the football players, who seems to adhere to that old saying that dancing is a contact sport. Football, even peewee football, is more like nuclear war. The intensity seemed awfully at, a, at an awfully high level. Do they enjoy that, or do they? If they don't you know, enjoy it, is it good for them? They, they, they love it. Give me for me. We love it. It's not badminton. It's football. You go out there the not intent, you're going to get hurt. We teach them discipline. We teach them teams. We teach them as there is no I in team. You know the organization. It all rolls into their later as they, they right. grow up in life to realize this is the way things are. are and the moment between you and the uh, referee. Um, I I was wrong. I got a little upset because I seen a few things that the referees. I realized they can't catch it all, but Ray Charles could have caught a couple of those plays. <laughs> These kids are trying to win a game, and y'all ain't helping them not. They don't need to get a holler either. All right, now that's enough. How about some therapy? Hey, come on, guys. All right, stop fishing here. And to those who say it's too intense, it's too much emphasis on winning, and if they don't win, you know. What, they're losers and that type of thing? What no, no, when they don't win, um, you've also got to be able to build them up and get their confidence back up that they lost, but that doesn't mean that they're not right. worth what practicing. Everybody is going to incur some uh, some disappointment in any game. Mm -hmm. um, as far as the toughness and how rough they are, if they don't want their kids to be tough and right, rough right. and play the game, they need to put them in gymnastics or ballet dancing. We've lost. Peewee football. So I'm sure we've all seen some coaches who can behave like that on the sideline. Um, one of the things that stood out for me was, I mean, he handled one of the kids. He, he twisted him in his helmet and he shouted out to the referee or the umpire that these kids are trying to win a game. And it made me think, is it the kids trying to win the game or is it the coach wanting to win the game? And I don't know, having watched that video, how any of those parents could allow their kids to be coached by someone like that. And that's obviously not going to create a positive um, team environment or playing environment. So in turn, yes, Mike. Sorry, just jump in on that if I... Yep. One of the parents in the background there was very supportive of the coach. Do you think the coach gets sometimes get caught in a situation where... It is them doing what the parents want rather than what they want to do as a coach because they've got a, you know, it's their social group sometimes too. Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, he might have been mates with the dad or whatever and they get, they egg each other on. Um, either way, um, you don't want, you don't want that behaviour. You don't want your coach or parents encouraging their players um, to do the wrong thing. You want to, you, you want to, Players, you want the players to feel safe in that environment where if they make a mistake, um, I mean, that boy that he was criticising at halftime, he may have been sick. There might have been something, a reason why, but he didn't give him a chance to answer. He just said he was sucking and didn't want to play. So I think, once again, it goes back to managing those expectations from the coach of the players and the parents right from the start of the season to ensure that we don't have that sort of behaviour. So in terms of match day coaching, competition provides players with the opportunity to learn and develop and, and it should be an extension of their training. So what they're doing in training, it should ease into what's going to happen in the game. 
what they're going to expect in the game. So a player-centred approach, a coach, sorry, provides an environment that ensures the players are growing and learning with every training session and every match. Then they mightn't have great games every training session, and they, or they mightn't have great training sessions, and they, they mightn't be on the ball every time in a game. But if they see themselves improving, for me, that motivates them and makes them want to come back and enjoy the game. So in terms of the purpose of, in, of coaching, it's about helping players learn what works best for them. As a coach, we're trying to help their players reach their potential. And, we, and to do that, we want to try and create independent players. So players are in a position where they can critique their own performances. They don't need the coach to tell them all the time what they need to do. And I think sometimes we, we need to allow the players to think for themselves and ask them what they could do better. Because if we ask them, a lot of the time they'll come up with the right answer. So it's not just about the, winning the game. It's nice to win. Obviously, everyone likes to win, but it's not the priority at this level. It's about trying to help their player, help the players um, become more independent and not rely on the coach. Coaches are there. We need to step in sometimes to create that environment or to facilitate that learning, but we don't always have to give them the answers. It's about encouraging the players to start thinking for themselves and identifying and maybe reflecting on their performances. And obviously that comes as they mature and they get older. Obviously when we're, we're starting at six or seven or eight, they might have some sort of idea on how they can go about approving, but, uh, improving their performances, but we're there to, that's what we're doing there as coaches to try and help encourage them. So a player, uh, centered approach focuses on the achievement of the player's goals. And the question I would like to ask the coaches is how many coaches out there actually talk to their players about their individual goals for the, for the game or individual goals for the season? What do they want to achieve? Um, because if we don't do that, then, and then we don't explain in terms of the characteristics of a goal. So it should be realistic. It should be achievable. It should be measurable and it should be specific. So we, it, it helps create that learning environment where the positive learning environment where the players then have a goal to work towards. Yeah, their, their goal might be as a team, it might be to, uh, to win more games than we lose. But what about their individual goals in terms of their, maybe it might be to improve uh, their passing with their least favourite foot. That might be something simple like that. But it's important, I think, for coaches to actually talk to the players about their goals and what they want to achieve from the season. Because it might be about winning. It might be about spending time with their, their friends at training and having fun. And that then helps the coach then realise or help that player achieve their goals throughout the season. And you, you, I think you need to understand the needs of your players and what and the work you need to do to meet those needs. But if we don't talk to them about what they want out of the season or we don't talk to them about their goals, then we've got no idea. And it's, it may not be about winning. It may be more about just being there and having fun, enjoying the game. You like playing football. Yeah, it's nice to win, but that may be their main goal. And it's important as coaches that we understand that. It's also important for us to... Uh, for the players to have an understanding of the game because that will allow them to improve 
as they progress. And they can do that by watching games. If their mum or dad videos their game, they can watch their own games and understand what they could do better maybe next time. They can be watching professional games. And, and when we talk about the um, isolated practice and players seeing Ronaldo doing his stepovers or, or whatever, that's about understanding the game and knowing when to perform those tasks. Um, asking questions of the coaches, um, reading books, all aspects, um, all factors that can help the players understand the game better. When we're talking about player-centred um, coaching, we're also talking about the questioning, asking your players to help them learn from their experiences, both from their success and their mistakes. So we could be asking them, what did you see when you're receiving the ball? What were some of the other options available? What was your positioning like when you received the ball? What may have been a better position to be in? They're all questions that we can get that get the players thinking about what they could do better next time they're in a similar position. But if all we do all the time is tell the players, give them the answers, they don't get a chance to think for themselves. And, they, and maybe they'll just keep relying on the coach to get that information. So it's important, don't overplay the, uh, I don't think, don't underestimate the importance of asking the players because a lot of the time, as I said earlier, they know the answers, but they don't, sometimes they don't get a chance. So also in regards to questioning is asking them the right questions that will help them in, improve their performance. And on match day, it's a great opportunity for players to learn and develop and in a, in a game situation, and obviously you're not going to be asking the players the questions during the game, but when if it's unlimited subs, when they come off, you can ask them some questions and get them thinking about their performance. So when they go back on again, they'll, they may focus on those things that you've addressed in your questioning. Okay, and it's important for to... There's got to be a chain of learning. So it's important to view the training sessions and match days as part of the one process. So there can't be, we do something on training days and then we do something on match days. It's, there's got to be that chain, a chain of learning where what we're doing in training is leading on to what we're hoping to do in a game. And that should be reinforced. So we focus on, and hopefully if you planned your training sessions well and they've gone well, the players will understand what the objective was in training and then you can build on that and you can maybe ask questions before the game. What have we been working on in training this week? Okay, yeah, that's what we're going to be working on in the game. So it gets the players thinking and prepare um, and preparing help, it helps to get the players prepared for the game. And then you reflect on what occurred in the match and build on that in the next training session. So there's just a simple diagram here where we've got what we want to work on in training in terms of training behaviours, uh, reinforce those behaviours on match day, then we see how match day goes, then we reflect on that performance and then we go back to training and if it, maybe we will still focus on those training behaviours but find ways to improve them or move on to a more advanced depending on um, what happened in the game. So in terms of match day coaching, there's a, and maybe some of you would be aware that 
coaches like to promote or some coaches like to promote ownership and decision-making during training sessions, but then they turn into another creature when, the, when, it, when there's points up for grabs. And they turn into coach-centered coaches on match day. And sometimes, and I'm assuming it's, um, it's all about winning. So in training, they're all about allowing the players to make decisions for themselves and take responsibility. But when it comes to a game, um, they become coach-centered. And that's not good for anyone. We talked about the importance of consistency. So using that player-centered approach on match days um, ensures that the, the competitiveness, and there's nothing wrong with competitiveness, but it shouldn't override um, what you want to achieve, what you want your players to achieve in the game. So winning can't be the main aspect of um, of the game. It, it should be a combination and we should be talking about how the players, how the individual players are learning. Because if we don't, then we're going to be, it's going to be all about winning all the time. And then maybe at the end of the season, yeah, your team may have won the competition, but as individuals, maybe you haven't developed as much as maybe you could have. So you should view the competition as an opportunity for your players to continue learning and creating that positive match day experience that focuses on their development. And that positive match day experience means when after the game, yeah, they, they might be disappointed if they've lost, but if they've done a lot of positive things in the game, then they'll want to come back. They'll want to go to training because then they want to improve on what they worked on in training last week, improve on it again this week. So when they go into the next game, they might be, they might be even better at developing uh, those, in, those particular skills. Just going to play another short video. It just reinforces basically about coaches' behaviour and, and the effect it has on decision-making of the players. As parents and coaches, it's crucial that we consistently present young players with the opportunity to make their own decisions on the soccer field. Allowing players this freedom to decide for themselves when they should, for example, dribble, pass or shoot, significantly develops their soccer intelligence and allows them to unlock their potential in arguably the most important area of the game. This is something we discuss in detail in our best-selling book, Coaching Outside the Box, which highlights how the world's greatest players all excel in the decision-making process on the field. Regardless of this important fact, what we constantly observe on a massive scale in youth soccer is unfortunately how many young players are simply denied the opportunity to go through the decision-making process and truly develop their all-round ability to think on the field. Instead, so many players are subjected to a bombardment of direction and commands from parents and coaches on the sidelines. What many of these adults fail to understand is how these constant commands and directions significantly hurt the player's ability to develop and learn as it simply stifles their creativity, enjoyment and ability to work things out for themselves. As top sports psychologist Sir John Whitmore concluded from his studies, we all have a built-in natural learning capability that is actually disrupted by instruction. 
So let's ask the question. Would these parents that yell the answers from the sidelines during a soccer game go into their child's classroom during a math quiz and start yelling the answers there? Most likely not. But yet this is commonly accepted as perfectly normal behaviour by many adults involved in youth soccer. Scott, I might just get some questions answered if you wouldn't mind. Yep, okay. No problem. Okay, from Maria Panetta. Welcome, Maria. Um, just going back to the American uh, football coach before, what would you do as a parent if you see coaches and managers uh, like this coaching at any age player? Well, I'd take my kid out of that program. I wouldn't have my, my child to be uh, in that sort of environment in the first place. Um, but also have a talk if there was a technical director, a club director, a technical director or whoever, just to talk, talk to them about that behaviour and ask him if that's him or her, if, that's, if they think that's suitable behaviour. And if they think it is, then you're probably at the wrong club. But you'd, you'd have to take action. You couldn't allow that to, to go. That's, that was embarrassing. Yep. Uh, from Radam on Facebook, uh, with regards to the questions you ask players during training and games, what sort of questions would you ask to get them to stop complaining about having to play positions they don't want to play? <laughs> um, I think you've got to make it, you've got to set them challenges. If you're going to ask them to play in a position that they don't want them to play, you can set them, set them challenges and try and motivate them to achieve those challenges or goals, set them some, some targets. Um, maybe show them some videos of players, of some of the world's best players playing in that position. Um, give them some role models to to maybe get them in. Because everyone wants to play. Everyone wants to play as a number 10, right, in the hole where they don't have to do anything um, defensively. They just want to be the, the creative player and the big star player. But there's only one of those on each team. So we've got to explain to our players that football is a team game, 11 players plus the subs. And everyone's got to work together if we're going to achieve some success. And uh, and when I say success, it's not just about winning games. It's about success in achieving our goals. Um, so I would just explain that, you know, there's only, um, there's only 11 positions on the field and we've got to, win, and we've got to fill each of them. And we, we're going to give everyone a chance at, at a young age and work out. And as they progress, we work out um, which position suits which player uh, as they get older. But I don't think there's any... Um, there's no easy answer for that to stop players complaining about playing in positions that they don't want to play in. From Carmel on Facebook, welcome. Uh, where is the balance between sticking to a long-term training program and changing training to respond to problems that have happened on the most recent game? Yeah, I think that's that's the challenge that all coaches face um, at, at junior level, but also um, well, more, more particularly at junior level. So there's is that finding that balance and then I think creating some or writing a list of priorities. So if what the outcome of the previous game, um, if that was an overriding thing that we need, it was, it was so poor that we needed to work on those factors, then there's nothing wrong. You might have a development plan going forward and you might have 40 weeks of the year where you have an academy program where you've got a, to a, a a topic for each week or each month, but you don't progress. You don't progress on to the next one unless you've you've got the first one organised and got that under control and understanding. So you might have a perfect forty-week plan, 
but you might only get through 26 weeks of that plan because you needed to spend a couple of weeks on a certain aspect of the game. And there's nothing wrong with that either. You start off at the start of the year. You mightn't even know your players at the start of the year. So you've got a 40-week plan. This is what ideally you'd like to happen. But it doesn't work out that way because they haven't progressed as, as maybe as fast as you thought they would. And we don't want to get through a plan just for the sake of getting through a plan. We want to make sure that we're, we're challenging our players and we're developing our players during that, during that time to ensure that they understand and learn uh, what we've done um, previously. Uh, Kevin, did you just want to come on and touch on parent education workshops, please? Sure. Um, in your opinion, Scott, do you think that a parent education workshop of some kind would help minimise this type of ugly parent syndrome on match days? It's not going to, it's not going to eliminate it, mate, but it's, it's, I think it can go a long way to, um, to try and um, calm everyone down and, and understand. I mean, at CUA here with the, the girls program, we have, a, we have a information evening at the start of each season. And one of the things we talk about is parent behaviour and what we expect from the parents. And there was a couple of instances a couple of years ago where I had to send an email to the parents just to remind them about their behaviour because they were getting too excited. Uh, because that doesn't, have, that doesn't help the players at all. If, the, if they see the parents getting overexcited and, and abusing referees or abusing the opposition and all that sort of stuff. So it's about having those those that interaction with the parents and sometimes maybe the coach has to go and talk to the parents or individual it might be only an individual parent but there's nothing mm. wrong with going to do that as well um, just to explain that it's not helping the players and it's not helping the team by having that sort of behavior so I think engaging with the the parents is, is really important thank you um, from Noel on Facebook why do you think we play 9v9 in under 10s if 7v7 is better for decision making? Because players have more time to choose a better option. I haven't got an answer to that, Noel. I, um, everyone has their own ideas on what number of players um, best suit, is best suited to, to player development. I understand what you're saying in terms of you know, the, the lesser number of players and the smaller the field, the more touches they're going to get, the more involved players are going to get in a game. But I haven't got an answer for why there's um, 9v9 at under 10 level. Sorry, can't help you there, Noel. Thanks, Scott. And uh, we're 60 minutes into your 90-minute game, so if you're pacing yourself... Okay. Any unlimited subs, mate? <laughs> See how we go. <laughs> All right, so... In terms of once once again our match day coaching in learning from the the mistakes is not criticizing the players because no player tries to no try no player tries to make mistakes on purpose so it's important that we can ident help them identify the mistakes that they make because some players may not know it was a mistake and it goes back to that previous video where they talked about coaches and parents actually preventing players from learning because of their behavior and not allowing them to make mistakes or the players being too scared to make mistakes. So that doesn't mean that the coach doesn't have input into how we can try and correct those mistakes, but it's about creating that environment and to allow them 
to make mistakes in a, in a safe environment and they know they're not going to get subbed just because they make a mistake. So it's important for us coaches, we've got to point out these. We don't sugarcoat things, I don't think. I think we can point out to players that they could have done things better. But then we ask them what could they have done better? What do they think they could have done better to ensure that they don't make that similar mistake again? So how do we apply that on, on match day in terms of this player-centred approach? So we're going to look at four things. We're going to look at the, the possibility of having a theme on match day, setting goals as a team, as an individual players, um, your observation, and also your, your communication. So they're the four things that we're going to look at that can maybe help us create a better learning environment on, on match days. So the theme, I think, is a great thing because the theme would have um, been set in training during the week and providing a theme for match day just encourages your players to focus on those specific tasks rather than the outcome of the game, rather than the scoreline. So that you're, you're trying to, all the week in training, you're working on this theme and the players are understanding what the expectations are and then you get a chance to test it. This is the exam. The game is the exam where you set a theme. So, for example, our theme for this week may have been, can we try to get into positions to receive the ball to play forward? So all of our training throughout that week, if we've got two sessions, we'd be focused on, a lot of the time, focusing on getting our players to get into a position to receive the ball, to be able to play the ball forward. And that's the theme. There might be goal setting on match day, because that's an effective tool to develop our players, not only as a team, but also for the individuals. So the goal for one, for a certain player, mate, can we try and look to play forward as our first option after receiving the ball? So we might have a central defender or a six who he gets the ball, he or she gets the ball from the keeper and every time they look to play it back. So the goal for that player or the players in those certain positions, might be every time you receive the ball, I want you to look up to see if you can play forward. So that's going to be our first option. Sometimes they can't play forward, that's fine. But we at least want them to have a look. So that might be a goal for that particular player. In terms of observation, you know, it's important that we observe games and, and observe the behaviours and the performances of our players. And this is why, that's what prompted me to, to run that um, managing unlimited substitutions workshop because it frustrated me watching coaches, all they were doing was making subs and not actually watching the game and watching what the players, the performances of the players. So it can't be judged by scoreline alone. Okay, we've got to observe our players and assess how they're doing in the areas that we've been focusing on. And that, that helps it, makes it easy for us as coaches that if we focus on that theme or those goals that we're setting, then it enables us to um, assess the performance of the players on those goals or on the themes. So collecting that information of the theme of the match, then we can we can judge the performance of the individual players based on what we've been working on in training and then help or encourage the players to try and achieve those goals. So we can ask the player in that sixth position, how many times did we look forward and play forward as our first option? So that might be our only focus in the game. 
and then obviously communication and it's not just what you say but how you say it and also your your body language but if we remember our theme and focus on that during our team talks along with uh, what we want our players to achieve as their their goals then it helps the players assess their own performance before we before we offer our observations so it, our the way we talk and how we talk and our body language and the tones that we use can help us maintain that positive environment so in terms of a half-time talk, our team may be losing 1-0, but our players have doubled the number of forward passes completed compared to last week's game. For me, that's a success. So if we focus at, by narrowing down to a theme or some goals and being able to assess the players at half-time based on the number of times we played forward passes compared to last week, that enables the coach to give that positive feedback. So yeah, we're losing one nil, we're playing really well, and we've doubled the number of forward passes we've completed. And that recording the number of forward passes completed, that might be the job of one of your substitutes, or it might be your team manager or one of the parents. So then we can keep those stats, and that can then be a learning moment for the players, because yeah, they might, they might end up losing the game one nil, but we've doubled the number of forward passes we made in that game. And that's a win for me in terms of achieving the goals. And the players might go away disappointed that they've lost the game, but they'll also have a lot of positive, uh, a positive vibe coming out of that because, yeah, we lost one nil, but the number of passes we forward passes we completed doubled. So that's a positive thing. And that'll help us going into next week's training sessions and next week's games. So I know it all, it may sound easy but if you communicate that information to your parents about what the theme is this week or what the goals are this week for the individual players, that will help the parents reinforce that behaviours, those behaviours before the game and after the game um, and try and make um, some positive comments about what happened on the game in terms of their, what their theme was or what their goals were. And I think that's really important so in terms of our environment, the environment you create on match days um, is, is just as important as the environment we create in practice. And as I said earlier, there's some coaches who really focus on player-centered coaching in training sessions, but all of a sudden they become coach-centered on match day. So what methods do we use to create an environment that enables creativity? Do we give player equal game time? Kevin was talking about um, for the first three quarters of the game, everyone gets at least 50% of game time. Do you use different substitutes each week? Um, do you rotate the players so they experience different player positions? And that, that can help develop trust, respect and enjoyment and take away the fear of failure. Because if, for example, we talked about the... the the previous theme before about getting into positions to play forward or make forward passes. We might have a player, a central defender, who won't play those forward passes because they're scared they're going to make a mistake. So we want to encourage them sometimes. If there's an option to play forward, we want them to play forward. But if we're creating an environment where the players are too scared to make a mistake, they won't play those forward passes. And a positive way of looking at it is that 
uh, is keep track of the individual passes. One, one particular player might make, how many forward passes did he make in a game? How many were successful? And then create challenges for that player as the season progresses to ensure that he improves on that. And he understands the benefit to the team of him making forward passes instead of playing square passes or, or passing backwards all the time. And we set a target for our Cambia United girls during this COVID-19 period. FFA, a couple of years ago, prepared um, competencies for the different playing positions. So the fullbacks, the central defenders, the holding midfielder, the attacking midfielder, the wingers, and the nines. So I sent copies of those videos. The videos had Socceroos and Matildas players doing all those um, good things in those certain, uh, certain positions. So we gave a task, myself and Eddie gave a task to our players. We sent them the video in the position that they play in and we asked them to identify the areas that they think they need to improve on playing in that position and then develop a plan of how are they going to improve playing in those positions. So not for the coaches to develop a plan, but get the players to identify the mistakes. And we're talking about 14, 15 and 16 year old girls at the moment where they watch those videos and say, for example, left back or right back, Ellie Carpenter or Steph Catley, observe their performances and what were, the good, what were they good at? What did they do really well? And what did the individual players in our program need to do to improve to get to that level? So they had to identify some of the weaknesses in their game and also develop a plan as to how they can improve on those weaknesses. And some of the information they came back with was excellent. Um, some needed a little bit more guidance because they were very general, but others went really deep into understanding their weaknesses and what they needed to, in, uh, to do to improve their performances playing in those certain positions. And having those role models was really important. Having not using international players, but using Australian players, using the Socceroos, using the Matildas as role models really helped our players um, motivate themselves to come up with a, an individual plan in how to improve their own performances. So I was, it really surprised me because it, it, they did a lot better than I thought they would. Okay, I'm just coming up to the, the last video. It's, it's a, a short interview. I edited the interview. It's with the former New South, uh, sorry, United States women's national team legend, Julie Foudy. She's a two-time World Cup winner and Olympic gold medalist. She's got a couple of kids playing football now and she's involved with the club. So I'll just um, play this for you. Um, one that embraces being competitive, of course. You want to be winning, you want to be competitive, but has a real sense of perspective that I'm also realizing as a director of a club or as a coach that not every kid's going to play to the next level. Not every kid's going to be on a national team or an Olympic team. And that in this moment, I'm not just teaching them to be a better athlete, but a better human being. And I can teach about character and I can teach about leadership and self-confidence and how losing isn't such a bad thing because you grow. And all these great life lessons that you learn through sports that could be reinforced by coaches. And um, I, I think we get so consumed with wins and losses and where we rank and what level we're playing at and how many scholarships you know our club has 
that we forget the basic thing about sports is it's this gift that teaches us about life. I don't know if it's a recent shift in terms of acknowledging that this win at all costs mentality is hurting, but I think it's pretty clear whenever you come to that conclusion that the system right now with the pay to play structure, and I get it, right? And I think parents are very well intentioned. I think clubs are well intentioned, but the way it is, it's, you know, you gotta win to attract the best players. And so the directors of clubs are under tremendous pressure by the parents and by um, other people in the club to win. And so, you know, it, it's, it's no longer okay to have a young team that you could say, oh, you know, let's develop you for four years and then we'll start winning because we're really just learning still because parents aren't patient enough for that. So I blame the parents, but I also blame the clubs in that I think they have to be better about their messaging, right? I think they have to be better about this is what we stand for and it will come and we are gonna lose. But if you constantly are reinforcing that message, what parent isn't gonna wanna say, yeah, I get that. I get that there's a process to this and it's gonna take some time and I want my kid to develop all these other character traits as well. And that's an important part of it. So I just, I, you know, I, I get, you can hear it in my voice. I get frustrated by the fact that, because my kids are going through it right now, that there's not enough clubs saying that and doing that. They may say it, but then you don't see it in action. And I, and I really want more clubs to say, Look, let's let's be realistic. Does it matter if they win at 10, right? Does it matter if they win at 12 if we're creating better players so that when they're 16, 18, you know, they're world beaters and most importantly, they're great human beings who have this great foundation because we've we've paid attention to those details. Well, I played that video. Um, I hope you could hear it properly. I know the volume wasn't great, but I played that video because I see a lot of similarities for what's happening here in Australia in terms of the ideal club environment and the, the argument about winning versus development. And I've only been back in Australia uh, for three years now after spending 22 years in Asia. But everything that she was saying, I could relate to because I hear it quite often here in the ACT. And I'm sure it's not just here um, where we have these challenges where if a club doesn't isn't successful, then all the players will move and go to the winning club. And and I know that has a lot to do with parents and the par parents' influence. And sometimes individual coaches are known to take coaches from one club to another club. But I think what we've got to look at is the long term and uh, the long term and having players develop within a club system. If the club has got a good development system and they they are developing players who can go on to play in the A-League or play in their senior team, that's great. Um, but I think I think it just seems to be a, a thing now where players at, at a young age are jumping from club to club to club either to play with their favourite coach or to play with their best friends. And sometimes that's not always the best solution. And I haven't got an answer to it, but I think and I said this naively when I first came back to Australia and I said if the clubs provide a great environment and a development environment for their players, then the players will stay. And everyone just laughed because they said that's not reality. In theory, it sounds nice, but it's not reality. And that's a challenge that we've got um, as our coaches and member federations and clubs where we've, if we can try and create an environment where people feel like they're part of a family, they enjoy going to training, they enjoy playing, and they can see, and the parents can see their players developing, then um, I'd be surprised if they did move. 
So what I've got here is a summary. This is taken from the FIFA Youth Football Training Manual and it's characteristics of players. So on the left side is the characteristics of a winner and on the right side is the characteristics of a loser. The reason I put this in is because I wanted, it comes down to the coach and the environment they create. If we have a player who is willing to take responsibility for their performances, if they manage difficult situations as an opportunity to learn, if they look for solutions, if they want to win, if they act as opposed to react and always thinks it can be done, they are the characteristics of players who have gone on to become champion players or professional players. Where if we create an environment where the player's always looking for excuses, is afraid of difficult situations or challenges, is only looking at negatives or problems, obviously doesn't like to lose, but reacts rather than acts, and always thinks that he or she can't succeed, then that's an issue for, for the coach to, to try and address. So I put that in there because I think it's important for us as coaches to be able to create environments where we can create more players on that left-hand side of the screen rather than the right-hand side. So just in, in terms of summary for what, we've, what I've spoken about tonight is that I think match days do provide a great opportunity for player development and learning, that a player-centred approach is a great way to achieve the purpose of coaching, which the purpose is to help our players reach their potential. It creates a positive environment that prioritises the development of the player and helps try and create those independent players that we spoke about, those players who have the ability to critique their own performances and come up with some plans to help them improve their own performance. But it also, uh, we're talking about a consistent approach so that the players understand what you're doing and they understand that we're in an environment where it's okay to make mistakes, but they're learning from their mistakes. And that sometimes we don't always rely on the players to be able to come up with all the answers. Sometimes we have to be asking questions. Sometimes we can guide them into helping them discover what the answer is. And the match day experience for junior players is critical because it determines the quality of the overall environment. So the coach, the club, the league, the member federation is trying to create that environment where players stay in the game, where they're actually enjoying playing football. You know, football's the number one participant sport here in Australia. We want to uh, keep it that way. So the most fun and enjoyable learning rich practice during the week can count to zero if on the weekend the match day environment is a negative one or it's poor. So you can have the best training environment, but if the match day environment isn't good, then players might drop out of the game. So I assume all of us want our players to fall in love with the game, like we obviously have. But we as coaches can help them do that by creating positive experiences and providing a safe and fun environment. And that'll have long-term benefits for clubs and the member federations. And that goes back to my previous point about the individual clubs providing those positive experiences. Well, more often than not, I would assume, encourage that player and parent to stay at that club. So we want to retain the players who want to stay in the game. We want to prepare more players with greater skill levels and expertise. And we want to equip the players with passion for football, 
that will help them overcome obstacles along the way. Because there are going to be obstacles, and that's our job as a coach as well, to help get the players over those obstacles. This is the, the last point of the slide. It comes from the FA, and it's a, it's a poster for their under nine or 10 program called Their Game, Youth Development, Youth Football Development. And it's pretty simple, but I really liked it. And I think it, it, it reinforces a lot of the stuff we've been talking about tonight. But it's also important, I think, for us as individual coaches when it comes to players. So from the technical side, we're looking at players, allowing them, encouraging them to play in different positions, um, learning as much from the game as they can, uh, playing different formations and allow the players sometimes to help pick what formation they're going to play. From a physical side, incorporate agility, balance, coordination into your warm-up. Um, allow players to play on different sides of the pitches, left and right. Play small-sided games and games of tag as part of your warm-up so they're enjoying it. Avoid having children standing in lines or waiting to try and get them as active as possible. From a psychological point of view, allow the players to learn from their mistakes and their successes. Allow the players to experiment and make their own decisions, uh, uh, allow the players to uh, ensure that we as coaches cater for the different learning styles and the importance of having pitches and using whiteboards and magnets can help the players learn. And from a social point of view, allow the players to be involved in the decision-making process, give players ownership, trust and responsibility within the team. And if the players do something well, praise them. And if they make a mistake, they didn't do it on purpose. Um, but words of encouragement can go a long way to helping them improve and helping them enjoy of playing football. That's it. I just want to acknowledge some references that I use for this presentation. Um, FIFA have a lot of documents that are available online. There's a youth football training manual that has everything you, you want to know about preparing players for youth football, training, selection, scouting, you name it. There's a whole range of exercises. So they're all available on the fifa.com website. Um, the FA, their game, they've got a lot of good resources. Mark Upton, who I, uh, who I read quite a few articles in preparation for this presentation, is the co-founder of My Fastest Mile and he's the coaching science manager at the English Institute of Sport. Lara Mossman from the Latrobe University, who did her PhD in well-being and positive psychology in football. Jeff Mitchell, who's the community coach advisor at Sport Auckland and the University of Birmingham. They did a study on youth football coaching. There's so much stuff out there for us as coaches of youth and community players. You get inundated. I printed off about 100 pages of stuff that I originally planned to, um, to read uh, before uh, finalising this presentation, but there's a lot of good stuff out there, likewise on social media that you can find that can help us better to create that that positive learning environment on match days and on training days to ensure that the players uh, are developing, ensure that the players are having fun, and to ensure that the players come back next year. And I think that's always a test for a coach. If the players keep coming back, you must be doing something right. So that's the end. So we, there, there might be a few minutes, Glenn, for some yep. questions. And then we'll... uh, 
I think you might have um, answered Valerie's question, uh, but uh, I'll ask it just so I can acknowledge, acknowledge her. Um, in regards to uh, playing players in set positions uh, from an early age, um, based on what you were saying on that last slide, I, I, I would assume you would discourage that. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in experimenting. I mean, I started as a as a as a forward, then I went back to midfield, and I gradually went back to defence. Um, it's I, I don't encourage specialising in positions uh, at a young age. I think it's important that we give everyone uh, opportunities to play in a variety of positions, and as they get into the more elite level of football, so you might be playing representative football or MPL at 14s, 15s, 16s, then you start specialising. But I wouldn't be doing any specialisation of positions before that. Uh, Michael, Michael Edwards, would you like to just come on with, in regards to your yeah. comment and question? Thanks, I just want to ask Scotty, um, a lot about this player-centred development tonight. When you have a player that regularly meets or exceeds the goals, tasks and challenges that you've spoken about giving them, how do you manage that player then? And vice versa, a player that can't meet them, what's your management of, of the player whose development isn't at that level yet? Yeah, well, two, two really good questions, Mike. I think the first one is sometimes as coaches, we've got to realise that we can only do so much. So if we've got a player who's excelling, who's doing everything and more that we're asking of them, then it's time to maybe sit down with the player and the parent and find a more challenging environment. And I know that might be hard for coaches because he or she might be your star player, and but we've got to put the player first. And if the player is achieving all those goals and setting all the challenges that you face and you can't do any more with them, then it's important then to look for the next step to progress that player onto a better coach or a more experienced coach or into a stronger league. Uh, because we want the players to keep on developing. We don't want them to go backwards. So in answer to your your second question, that's a more challenging one where a player is constantly unable to achieve um, their their goals. And we've got a situation, say, here in, in um, capital football where we have the NPL environment and we had a lot of applications for relative age effect um, players over the last three years that I've been here. And sometimes I've had to say to clubs that we have to realise that sometimes we have to face the facts that at that point in time, maybe that player isn't at the NPL level. So maybe he'd be far more beneficial playing in the junior league and achieving some success playing with players of his own or equal ability. And then never write them off, keep track of them. And then if they are, they are improving playing in that junior environment, then they can be promoted to NPL next year. But I think it's really important for players to be in there in the environment where they, we think as coaches or parents think that is best suited to their development. And sometimes we've got to go backwards before we go forwards. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, no, I agree, mate. And thanks for that. Um, you know, one of the, the struggles that we have, as you know, in the member feds is that a lot of our competitions are age categories rather than developmental categories. And we've got to find ways to, to help the players that are struggling a little bit with development, their development or those that are ready to push on without jumping a whole team up too early. Yeah. 
And we've got, I mean, we've got clubs here who have junior teams and we've got clubs who only have NPL teams. So those clubs who have the junior teams or feeder teams, they've got a big advantage because then um, they can send them back um, and then bring them back next year into the NPL environment if their development, um, if that if that's what's appropriate for that individual player. It's just trying to find the right balance and there's no perfect um, answer to that. But having that opportunity and having, I think, from the coaches having the honesty and the courage to say, well, actually, Mike, I've, I've taken you as far as I can go. You need to go to that next level. I think that's an important thing that coaches have to, to realise and, um, and so do parents. Thanks, Scotty. Just a couple to go, Scott. Uh, questions from Simon on Facebook. Do you think you should coach for the entire game or hold back and let the player make their mistakes? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I don't think when we're, particularly when we're talking about community or junior football, I don't think we should be coaching from the sideline at all, uh, or not at all, I take that back, that we should be just um, guiding the players and encouraging the players. We don't want to be telling the players who to pass the ball to and where to run, because then they're never going to make those decisions for themselves. So we've got to create that environment at training where the players have some sort of understanding of what their roles and responsibilities are playing in each of those positions and let them try it out in the game. I mean, those going through their advanced coaching licences will know when they're, um, they're going through their passing practice, the positioning game, the game training, the training game. The training game is where you sit back and observe what, you've, what the players have done in the first three parts of the, the first three phases of the training session. And that's what the game should be about. And I shouldn't be talking. Um, we should be encouraging our players. We should be motivating our players. But I don't think we should be over-the-top coaching in games. That's where we sit back and see the benefits of what we've done in training and what we've done on the training field and actually see if the players can understand and put into practice what we've been doing at training. And if they don't understand, then we've got to work harder on the training field. So, yeah, I, I don't think we should be non-stop talking and coaching during the game. Um, and uh, as one of the expert panellists here today, Kevin, did you just want to wrap up on player-centred model? Sure. I just It's just a small comment, but I really like um, the fact that you had a player task for each individual within the game. That makes it really inclusive and it caters for their abilities as well. So I'd highly encourage all coaches to adopt that. Um, it definitely helps each player reach their potential and it caters for their needs as well. So I was really pleased to hear that from, from your presentation, Scott. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Uh, did you just want a final summary, Scott? Uh, that's it. Yeah, no, I've, 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 I've given the summary, mate. I'd be just repeating. But what I, what I would just say is just it's important for coaches to think about how they coach. And the best way of doing that is videoing yourself coaching videoing yourself in training, video yourself in games and see if you are creating that positive learning environment for your players. And sometimes you'll be surprised what you say. You don't even realise you're saying it in games or in trainings. And I know games and competitive formats, you get involved in the game, but sometimes just get someone to video yourself on the sideline coaching and maybe watch it back and see how many positive comments you give as opposed to how many negative comments you give. And, Record how many times you've given the answers to the players rather than, uh, rather than providing, giving the players the opportunity to make those decisions. Watching yourself on video um, is, the best, is one of the best 
education tools for coaches in, in terms of watching ourselves training and watching ourselves at games, during games. No, thanks. thanks very much, Scott, for your presentation. It was fantastic. And we look forward to joining you all again in two weeks' time. And thanks very much, Scott. Thanks, Glenn. Pleasure. Thank you.